Hi everyone, happy Thursday, and welcome back to Everyday Endorphins. I'm really excited to air this episode. Laura and I met back in 2009, so I was about 9 or 10 years old then. She's been one of my mentors, honestly, throughout the past 11, 12 years, um, which has been incredible. I met her through a yoga program she designed for young children and uh, early adolescents called Namasteens. She really was the first person who helped me realize my passion for yoga and got me really interested in the practice. Growing up, I didn't really know all the incredible work that Laura has done in the yoga community and in the academic community because I just, I was too young to really understand. So it's been so wonderful to reconnect with her now and to learn more about all the amazing research she's done about yoga with cancer patients, the effects of yoga on the body and the mind, and I just really enjoyed having more of a philosophical conversation on the practice of yoga. I think a lot of people often conflate yoga with either complete relaxation and lack of movement or with physical activity. And I just want to convey that there's so much more to yoga than just it being an exercise. As you'll hear Laura describe, yoga has tremendous benefits uh, when you are exposed to the practice at the beginning um, or during your, your childhood development, your, your early adolescent, uh, late childhood years. Um, so I don't want to give too much away, but you'll hear later in the episode all the wonderful things Laura has to share. Before we get into the recording, I do want to shout out Anchor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I also want to give a shout out to Strive Coffee. If you use the code endorphins, you will receive 10% off of your order. And what better way to start your morning than with a cup of coffee brewed from single origin roasters? Way to be sustainable and ethical. And get your daily dose of endorphins. All right, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's really wonderful to have you on as a guest and reconnect here after so knowing you for so many years from the beginning of my journey practicing yoga. It's such a pleasure to be here, Stella. Thank you so much for having me. And you've done so much incredible research in the yoga community. And you honestly kind of inspired me to start practicing yoga when I first met you. So I really do owe a lot of my my interest and passion for yoga and well-being to you. Oh, that's so sweet of you to say that. Um, really a pleasure that you're wanting to connect again because we met, I think it was in 2009. I'm thinking you were around nine years old when we first met. Yeah, I correct? was nine and I had done yoga just with my mom. We would go to the the Pure Yoga studio in New York and 
she would kind of drag me along and I would sit and wait for her during her class. And then eventually she'd bring me into the studio and we'd practice together. And uh, that's, that's where I met you doing your class with my mom. That's right. And then we started um, the program at Pure Yoga called Namas Teens, which was this unusual program really for the city at the time, because there were, there was a budding interest in uh, like children's yoga and yoga in schools um, that I had actually been a part of some of those initiatives, uh, you know, dating back to 2000, 2001. But in, at Pure Yoga, we identified this sort of gap of offerings where no one had been really offering yoga to preteens or to teenagers. And so I wanted to um, design a program and then implement it and, um, and, and see where it went and see who came. And you studied there, I think, from 2009 to 2012, if I'm correct. Yeah. And I loved the Namasteens program. It was really fun to have a class dedicated to practicing yoga with people my age rather than being in a fully adult class as a 10-year-old. <laughs> so I really did love having that space to practice. And I I remember um, like how relaxing the class was and it felt also very educational. I remember you once um, told us in class when we were doing the eagle pose where like your hands are bound in front of you and usually your your hands are blocking your line of sight. You had said something to the, you basically said like, don't let the, your hands in front of your eyes block you from seeing what's right in front of you. Like you can just see right past it. And as a kid, I, I didn't think a lot about it, but it's something that really resonated with me and stayed with me to this day because it's such like a beautiful metaphor for how to overcome obstacles in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of these metaphors that we can take from the activities that are within yoga, but also in other types of activities that are similar uh, can give us a lot of meaning and, uh, and, and context of how to approach maybe even uh, more challenging obstacles outside of that particular um, endeavor, you know, like being able to balance on one leg and compress your body. I always looked at yoga, especially when working with um, children and with teens, of seeing yoga as a game that you create your own challenges in order to then exercise these strengths and to elicit them um, from the activity, if that makes sense. So just to give you a little bit of a background of like how Namasteens evolved. Um, so I got certified when I was a teenager. I was 19 when I was certified. And at that time, I was listed as the youngest certified yoga teacher in the database for yoga. Um, for it was, it was pre-Yoga Alliance, but it was like in the databases. And I had learned yoga from my mother early in life. And she, you know, had a lot of types of materials that she was practicing yoga from, like books and like the Richard Hittleman at, at 21 or two, I think it's 28 day yoga program. And then Lilius, who was on PBS. But it was just kind of like in the, you know, it was like, a, it was a very marginal, like almost mystical practice that people, like some people were um, participating in and you'd like see flyers at the health food stores and all that. And I had a meditation teacher that I was introduced to at the age of 12, that I then had a 20 year relationship to, because um, it was just, 
a fascinating practice. And, you know, I would read books on Gandhi and things like that. I was just interested in like, I don't know, some of these uh, philosophies. And then in college, I studied a little bit of Asian thought under the professor, Susan Ironbiter. Um, and one of my childhood friends, her father is Carl Ernst, who's like a very famous professor um, of, of the Sufi religion. So I had kind of like this influence. And I think a lot of people have influences of lots of different things. It's just like what you're drawn to. So I practiced the Richard Hittleman um, routines in my parents' basement when I was a teenager. And I used it to supplement. I was a competitive ice skater and, a, you know, uh, trained as a dancer, very similar to you. And I used the yoga sort of as a way of grounding myself. And I think I was also interested in like the exotic side of it. Um, I thought of like these yogis being superheroes that could be buried alive and stop their heart rates or something like that. You know, like the, the, the yogic lore that you hear about. Um, and then fast forward, you know, I, I was a professional dancer and I also supplemented my dance career with being a, a, an educator. And I worked in the public school system as an English teacher, but I was hired to integrate uh, movement into the curriculum because they were cutting the funding for physical activity and for art. And so they thought, well, maybe we could have, you know, the English teacher combine reading, learning, physical activity, and the arts all at once, you know, and it was a program that I felt like wasn't supported enough, but I, you know, I, I took a good go at it. And so I did that from 1999 to 2000 for middle school, uh, fifth and sixth grades for the board of ed in New York city. And from that experience, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also an educator and she was, you know, was kind of like basically venting of like where I felt like the program wasn't um, succeeding and what I wanted to do with it. And she said, well, why don't you come to Children's Aid Society? I have a great uh, employer there, a boss that's really supportive of kind of innovative programs. And so I met with that person and immediately we, um, we, we, there was a kinship and she then supported me in, in, developing programs there. And that was incredible. Um, the Children's Day Society is a, is a long, um, is a long-standing program in New York City. Um, it's based, you know, you can look up at the history, but it has a, it has a very interesting history of, you know, dating back from the 1800s um, and what types of programs they do. And so I started the first yoga program there and I worked with the toddlers in early movement activities um, I then developed a mommy and me class, an after school program, um, an early childhood program of using yoga. And I wrote a curriculum and the director of the Children's Aid Society at that time was a, psych a developmental psychologist. And so I would, you know, on Friday afternoons, I would kind of go over some of my ideas with him. And he was so supportive and really mentored me in how to you know, you, what, what kind of research to use in developing my curriculum and in how to think about the goals of the program, which is early socialization. So that's my main goal of these yoga programs in all these different age brackets um, wasn't primarily movement or yoga. It was socialization. And that gave it such a richness so that in my teaching of, you know, at Namas Teens and, you know, starting in 2009, because this program was back in, you know, the early 2001, all the way up to 
um, I can't even remember how long I was at Children's Aid Society, but a good like five, seven years, that then my goal at, at Namaste and was really about being consistent and being um, an important relationship to uh, preteens and teens. And I also had read a lot of psychology because of the mentoring I, I received. And I then began to think about like, you know, the stages of brain learning and cognitive development, social, social development, um, as well as like physiological motor development and what is important in each stage. And so the name Namas Teens, Nama comes from um, a, the, the way that I reference it is it means in this moment to name, to honor, to recognize that this moment exists. And then the, the teens comes from, you know, um, Namaste. And, and then it's kind of like a play of like Nama teens being like the teens being the, the uppermost um, age that we would then um, end the program. And so it's honoring that each moment each stage of a child's development is unique and it's unlike, you know, like you're different when you're 11 years old versus when you're nine years old, you're different at 10 years old than you are at nine. And so to be able to have a curriculum and material that has both a floor and a ceiling of both being familiar material and then also of being really challenging material for that age that where you're not overshooting their abilities so that that child can develop self-efficacy and feel a sense of um, command over their mind, body, and also their um, their intellect, their spirit. The preteen years is when we're starting to branch away from comparing ourselves to just our peers, but beginning to look at the world around us and how we want to exist in the world. So coaches of um, the same gender to students is known to be very an important relationship at those ages. And I had that, you know, growing up. And so we know this in like the research literature that at a certain point, the parents are still, of course, influential, but they're influential in different ways where then teachers and coaches and um, other adults outside of the family unit become more influential. And so I saw my role um, to teenagers, to preteens, as, as being really sacred and important um, to facilitate and guide and to influence and to inform um, students to, of how to, um, how to resource information and activities and, you know, to, to be a guide for those individuals um, as they begin to learn about themselves and the world. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, I love how there's so much psychology that's applied to the science of how you created the curriculum and really the goals of the program, as you mentioned, more really like a socialization uh, process rather than just a yoga class for kids aged seven to 11, 12, 13. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to learn more about what types of materials you included in the curriculum to really shape these um, students' experiences and see yoga as a different type of practice rather than an exercise, but more so a place that can really cultivate self-development. 
you know, when I was, when I had met you, you were very consistent and a really good student and just like really absorbed a lot of the lessons. Like we were, I felt like there was a lot of um, alignment to what I was teaching and what you were wanting to, you know, take from the experience. At the time that I met you, I was actually developing um, a manual that I then had translated and I taught in Japan and I taught, I think over like 53 trainings in Japan from 2009 until 2019 on how to work with children. And I, you know, so I wrote, I was writing um, and developing the content right at the time that I was, um, that we were working together because it was helping me understand what resonated. You know, you actually helped me just as much as, you know, as maybe I gave you. And so I think a lot about, um, I, I, I'm heavily informed by theory and theory isn't actuality. It's just organized ways of understanding and describing what is observed, you know, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, informed my work where you think about like the bottom layer of the pyramid of being like physiological safety and then, you know, all the way up to like the, the self-actualization, um, you know, and, and you probably know his work where, you know, he, was an anomaly um, in psychology because he started to study high achievers versus the abnormal pathologies. So he was like, wait a second, why are we studying, you know, what's going wrong? Why don't we study what's going right? And in healthcare, there's this new movement, or it's not new, but it's um, a popular movement that's really taking hold in terms of looking at health and wellness and prevention, and that's value genesis of like, what about strengthening what is working in the person's system, you know, in the body, in their, in their life, in, you know, and I've been thinking about this, especially in thinking about like pathologies, like with autism or Down syndrome, like how we've, we describe them as, you know, something that's wrong, but what about observing how, what's actually functioning for that child? And, and so going back into what's informed me, I'm kind of long-winded here, but Montessori, Maria Montessori, I read a lot of her material and she had similar observations of, you know, her background was that she was on her way to, you know, doing a medical degree. And then she got sort of hired for this um, summer program where she was going to take these orphan kids. And, um, and she then developed these theoretical models of the triangulation of the teacher to the environment, to the students learning. And, and it was very successful. You know, she observed that it was important for the child to develop this, the ability to interact with their environment because it's not this world that they will exist in. It is their future world that they will exist in and how important it is that they have the ability to interact with the environment um, independent of the teacher eventually. And that, that makes me think so much about like what these children in the future are going to be faced with post-pandemic of how the world will look so different than the world we had that both you and I had, I think is, will be more similar to than their world and thinking about the different skills um, that they would need. So, you know, when I look at what is of the yoga curriculum, you know, what is taught in yoga uh, of all these different, like, you know, we think of yoga as just the asanas and the physical practice, but thinking about the self-regulation practices, the breathing, the, um, the philosophy, the me metaphors, you know, the, the magical thinking in a way of being 
you know, of, uh, you know, what, what we don't understand about the world, what we don't see of the world um, that we might not comprehend. Um, and also of the mutability or where we have opportunity to create change. And um, this week I've been reading more about the foundational um, work um, of homeostasis and how like the origins of homeostasis of thinking about the constant environment and then how important it is to have stimulus in order to be healthy. So, you know, those right. of us that are sitting on our couch all the time, we, we understand firsthand how miserable that makes us versus when we go for walks or we go for a run or we do something that's above our normal state of being because we need that adaptation. Right. So that we can self-regulate. Right? Yes. And how yoga, it makes me think, you know, in terms of like, is yoga a natural state? I don't think so. Yoga is, is an intervention from our normal, like, you know, um, humdrum state of being. And even there's like some terms in the yoga literature that talk about like Pashu or the, the, the cow brain of like, you know, like chewing grass and just existing, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, at a very simple level at versus what could be more evolved in terms of existence. Yeah. Um, and it, it takes, it takes activity. It takes um, coming out of our inertia. Yeah. And I think something uh, that just reminded me is, you know, when you're practicing, I think a lot of people associate yoga with being very calm and very slow, which a lot of practices definitely can be, but it requires so much focus and a heightened attention state to really being present in that moment and focusing on exactly what you're doing, breathing into certain spaces in your body to create more space or noticing how the energy changes. And that requires a lot of attention and focus, not just kind of existing in the practice and relaxing. It's very, uh, there's a lot of energy, even in, in stillness. Absolutely. I mean, what you're describing also is like we can see from the simple structure of the nervous system, like the afferent, efferent, like external stimulus, internal processing, you know, and then response to, you know, that stimulus. And, and I, I, so I went back to school. Okay. So after I, I finished um, the foundational work of the Namaskins program at Pure Yoga, then I got headhunted to work on the um, team at Memorial Sun Kettering. And there I was first hired to work with um, children of childhood brain tumors, survivors of childhood brain tumors. That was my first um, task there. And then it, I was hired to teach just like a one hour a week, you know, fill a position. But that position, because of my then curiosity and, and relationship with the director, it grew into a full-time, the first, full, first and only full-time position that they've ever had of a, of a yoga teacher. Um, then I had a staff of, of um, nine to 12 um, depending on the time, uh, practitioners under me. So I de designed at that time that I was there the largest yoga program in any Western hospital. That's and, incredible. That yeah. is incredible. Right. So we then, you know, looked at where can yoga fit within the hospital environment? Well, Hurricane Sandy hit and it was like, there are nurses and doctors who've been sleeping at this hospital who are stressed, who have secondary trauma to the patients, you know, so we need to offer programs that can help them and support them. Uh, we have nurses that, you know, are being given donuts from their patients and families. And they're like, you know, they're like, well, thank you. But I'm actually like, so, you know, I don't have any, I'm so exhausted because of my 12 hour shift. I don't have any time to exercise. 
you know, how can, you know, how can we create a program for them that fits with their schedule where, you know, maybe it's in their lunch break. And anyway, we, we looked at the whole hospital um, milieu and we began to inject all of these different programs that could then support um, the care team, but the patients, the patients, as well as their parents, um, you know, the parents who are sleeping on the pediatric oncology floor. Um, how could we support them? Because, it, you know, when you when you treat the parent, you're treating the child. And I then got to be part of a couple of research studies, including one that was focusing on mechanisms. And so I wanted to then dive deeper into that. And I needed to go to a formal program because there was no way I was going to be able to, to teach that to myself. So I then um, applied for the um, the biobehavioral department at Columbia University has this great um, section of applied physiology, but also of motor learning and motor development, which kind of crosses over into OT research. Um, and I then, um, and, and health ed. And I, so I, I've been in that program um, and working towards finishing, hopefully doctoring out very soon, but I had a baby. So I'm on maternity leave this semester, but I decided to study a lot of the ways that I could explain what's happening um, from what I observed. You know, we talked about like populations that yoga could be useful for. I was looking at like, well, how could, it, you know, how could we apply yoga to children, but also then to teens and then how it's different than adults. Like you were describing how, um, how, you know, you took classes with your mom, but it wasn't the same. And how could an approach that was specific to you, both in skill level, but also in interest, then be enriching and be something that was like really handcrafted for your stage of development of who you were at nine years old versus who you are at 14 versus now, like, you know, going to like an adult class at age 18 and really challenging your body and maybe not getting so much of the philosophy is really what you know, really hits you, or maybe then, you know, at now age 21, where it's about, you know, how to apply these lessons into like who you want to be in the world and how you want to actualize yourself. And I, I really do love um, how your research focuses on understanding how yoga can be applied to different age groups or different niches. Like how can you change your approach so that the child or the adolescent or the now adult is gaining something different out of the practice. I remember back when we saw each other, maybe this was like 2012 or, or 2013, a while ago, we were talking about uh, some like epiphanies you had come to at age 18, I believe it was. You, you had made a comment about the way you saw the world at 18 and remember remembering very distinctly that you could remember how you perceived the world to be like at 16, but how it had drastically shifted once you had hit 18, but you were caught kind of between seeing the world as a 16 year old and also an 18 year old. And it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to articulate, but I, I remember that so clearly as I'm growing older now, I'm 21. I oftentimes I'm, I'm trying to understand how my development has changed from when I was 18 to where I am now and trying to understand the nuances of how I see things a bit differently now versus how some things have kind of stayed the same. And I do think a lot of it has come from having a dedicated yoga practice because it's, it's kind of like this invisible therapeutic space to, re to reflect without even realizing you're engaging in some sort of deep critical reflection. 
Yeah, you're, what you're describing also is like known experience. And, it, and one of the um, texts talks about like having an imprint pressed into you. It's like where it's, it's a, it's something that you've been able to, it's like, it's, it's made an impression. Like the difference between like having had like this, a peach and having tasted it and knowing what that's like versus maybe like some exotic dragon fruit or something. I don't know. So what's something that you've never, you're in New York, you've tried everything, but um, you know, something like you've never tried and you have no idea even what it's like, you know? But, you know, like to be in the Shetland Islands in the north of England in the middle of winter, like, you know, would you really know what that's like? You can you can associate from previous experiences that experience. But, you know, it's until you really experience like what it's like to be 18 or what it's like to be 42 or what it's like to be a grandmother. You know, it's like, you know, until you really experience it, there's going to be like the known experience of it. And then there's like what you can have is like the imagined. Um, impression and and teaching children has you know ha, is you know you have this advantage of knowing what it's you know what what it's like to be 14 but you don't know what it's like to be that 14 year old to have that story to have you know those parents to have you know the, that those challenges in your school or you know in your social circles or whatever that challenges you and um and I was lucky in that I was introduced to yoga at the age of three. I remember it. Um, I remember doing Lotus with my mom um, in front of the PBS show. And I remember her guiding me through relaxation um, in order to fall asleep at age five because I had a hard time falling asleep. I was a really hyper kid. And I remember, like, I, you know, I, I remember, like, I started studying um, Ashtanga around age 21 because the structure of Ashtanga gave me structure because there wasn't any structure upon graduation um, for me because I went into like a very, you know, I went into being a dancer as opposed to like having a corporate job and I needed something that gave me a sense of um, normalcy and, and, and stability. And I think that a lot of people probably are looking for those things right now in the middle of the pandemic because we are in such an unpredictable time and that lack of knowing what's ahead is something we always existed in, but now we we are really faced with the reality of that, um, where there's the unknown economy, world, um, uh, you know, governance, um, you know, food supplies. I mean, there's just so much unknown, um, but that's always been the case in all of history. We've just had more stable time in human history and you know, and right now, those of us that have lived this long are facing for the first time a very unstable time. But we hear about it from like our ancestors, like from our grandparents of like previous times that they've lived through, you know, but we don't have that experience. So for us, it's really jolting. So we look for things that could be stabilizing. And the yoga practice can give us that, like how to live in the moment, how to be present. Um, and so with working with children, I, I wanted to make sure that because a, a lot of the approaches at that time for, for teaching yoga to children was taking adult yoga and making it kid size, like making fun names out of it. Or, you know, I, I, I was really, um, I was, I had a dissonance with the way that yoga was being approached because I was a kid experiencing yoga. And so I took the approach of like, that we need to instead see see the opposite. Children need, you know, physical activity before they need stillness. That's how they'll self-regulate. 
the adult, as the more adult we become, like, uh, you know, technically, physiologically, you pass that pyramid at age 25. So you're not quite there yet, where you reach like a certain physiological, biological shift that will begin to happen. But, you know, after that age of 25, then you begin to need more stillness. Until that point, my personal philosophy from the literature that I sourced is that we need more stimulus for them self-regulation. So children need, you know, even in the um, government guidelines across all countries that have guidelines for physical activity is to be more active when you're younger for longer durations and for higher vortexes of, of um, intensity because the system needs that stimulus. Would you say that's for um, purely like physiological needs, like needing that physical activity for yes. health and fitness? Or does that also kind of provide an after effect of, um, you know, providing stillness in the mind through being exposed to various stimuli and being very physically active? Yeah, that's, I don't know if I'll be able to answer that. Um, but yes, the first part, I, yes, absolutely. The physiological adaptations that happen from physical activity. And we know this from like the prediction and long, longitudinal research of looking at children who are less active when they're younger and the physiological burden that then they have, like that they're more likely to have diabetes and heart disease and be sedentary throughout their adult life. Like we know that children who were not exposed to sports um, are less likely to like sports as an adult. It does get harder to motivate yourself to move um, the older you get. And some of that's because, you know, your body, um, you know, at the age of like 18, 19, you know, we really see on these graphs of ability in terms of like, you know, like when we look at disabilities and ability and, and, um, and you know, even like in terms of your recovery, you probably are starting to notice like certain you know, health behaviors that um, are slowing down a little bit because they do start to slow down when you're around 20, um, 21, where if you have too much sugar the night before, maybe before you didn't feel it because your system would process it very quickly, but within four hours, but now it's a little bit slower that you might feel it 10 hours later where you're still getting like a headache or a deficit. Yeah, definitely. Disruption. I, I, yeah, I think I've been way more tuned now to how my diet will affect um, my energy levels or my mood. There's a much greater effect now than let's say if I was 15 or nine years old. And then that also kind of uh, ties into the idea of, you know, what you put into your body, your body is your home. It's your food fuels you to, to accomplish so many tasks, to have the energy to move and, and be physically active and to have the energy to think critically too. I often get really hungry when I'm just doing homework because I, my mm -hmm. brain is expending so much energy. Um, so yeah, I think there's like this hyper awareness now, um, or hypersensitivity as I'm getting older to the, the choices that I make for my body, mm -hmm. how it affects mm -hmm. really everything. Yeah. And to, and for us to be able to make the best choices of what we have available to us, you know, we're very fortunate to be able to have good nutrition and to not live in food deserts and to have um, adequate water supply and also to, you know, be able to care about that versus just survive. Um, you know, that's such a, you know, when we look at Maslow's pyramid of needs, you know, like that being the, the foundation, but also then to be able to move our body freely. So there's all these programs that had emerged at the time, you know, that we, that I started in Namaste teams and that we met, you know, people teaching yoga in Africa and other uh, places like where there would be very limited needs 
that were fulfilled. And, you know, I, I met with some of the people who were doing those kinds of programs, um, especially because I was an ambassador at Lululemon and those kinds of people were part of that ambassador program. We all got to kind of get together and talk to each other um, on occasion. And it was very interesting to hear about some of their um, goals in offering those programs when, you know, part of me is like, don't, they just want basic needs, but then to, you know, to give someone a tool to be able to have self-efficacy, to be able to make a positive change, to not feel so limited that there's no real equipment really needed um, no outfit really needed for yoga. I mean, you know, as much as it's nice to have something that you can move comfortably in, but you really don't need very much where there can be just such the simplicity of it. The ingredients are you time based and really one of the, the largest side effects that we get from yoga is a waste of our time. Yeah. And I do love Lululemon. I love aloe yoga. I love all the fitness mm-hmm. brands. But I do think there's this gap in like the wellness industry with how they portray mm-hmm. yoga, especially like the ads you see of certain types of models and yoga clothing and the poses and the postures that they're doing. I think it, it gives off a, an image that yoga is, um, you know, not not for all types of people. And it also, I think people are, are viewing yoga as something that it, it really isn't. Yes, it can be a nice way to de-stress after a long day or or it can be really great to strengthen your body and um, while also providing space and lengthening your muscles. But there's this whole other side of yoga that really has to do with the philosophy. And it's more of this introspection, more maybe like a spirituality side of yoga that I don't think is really portrayed from all these different uh, companies in the wellness industry. And that's so unfortunate because yoga is so deeply personal. It's not about the next flashy pair of leggings that you're going to wear to a class or the kind of mat that you have. Like you said, you really don't, you just need yourself. You just need your yourself and to be present in that moment. Well said, you know, when we think about the noise that we have around um, what is presented and um, the commercial uh, messaging I think, okay, that's great that that's out there because it communicates. It's unbelievable to me, you know, starting to teach, you know, back in the late nineties, you know, I didn't think that yoga would even be as big as it is. I can't believe it's on billboards, you know, for commercials because it was so fringe, you know, for so long. So I celebrate that it's, that's out there. Yet I also understand what you're saying because I don't want someone to get on their mat and to think that they're not achieving or that their yoga isn't valuable because it doesn't present in the way that it's marketed back to us. Um, And then there's also the conflicts that occur in terms of like who owns yoga, where did yoga come from, what's the real yoga, what's the traditional yoga. And I've been actually at the UN in some of these discussions um, and some of the political drivers that are wanting to um, reinstate and to reaffirm what that is. And I also, when you start to then talk to some of the scholars in this, well, you know, at the at the time that traditional yoga emerged, well, there was a lot of other factors that were coming into play that it was actually very heavily influenced by Western forces as well. These types of um, modalities existed and exist and continue to evolve um, depending on the context and the actors that use this type of um, resource. And so... I'm really on the, you know, my vision um, of and my con- my goals con- contributing to the industry 
are to help to support the evolution and to, you know, have high inclusivity um, and empowerment um, and engagement with lots of different types of individuals that when they are participating, that their yoga can be real yoga. And what that real yoga is, is between them and the universe. It, it is not dictated by the silly little things that we have that are around us, the noise. And we forget that because we do exist um, at a time where the tools of our um, social media platforms and our um, instruments, you know, both help us stay connected, but also block us from that feeling of connection. It's, it's very hard. It's a confusing time. And even more so that we need these real, um, authentic experiences of what it's like to be with our breath and to interpret and read some of the foundational literature. Um, and I call it yogic lore because I think that, you know, it's like somewhat like that's, you know, it's just like in, in reading ancient scriptures, it's like we, we can, we can use it to help inspire our, our current existence. And yet this current existence is what's real. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think based off of everything that we've talked about, I feel like this is why it's even more critical or important that young children are able to start engaging in the practice. And mm-hmm. um, I love how your programs were so specifically tailored to a certain age group and trying to understand how you would approach young kids into making yoga more fun and like a game and encouraging that physical activity. I know a lot in yoga, we talk about like the mind body connection and being very attuned to your body um, through your breath. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a mind body connection even means. It's hard Mm -hmm. to define it because it's, it's very ambiguous. And I'm actually taking a class right now about the body mind connection. There's a lot of literature that describes how there's multiple um, sources of intelligence in your body. There's not just your head brain, but there's the heart brain and the gut brain. And the gut brain is like that foundational part of the pyramid. And then the heart brain is above. And then finally the head brain at the top. And so you can't really, you know, live to your full head brain potential or or optimize it unless you have the gut brain and the heart brain in alignment. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering is that another theory for understanding the mind body connection and, and how, how can you achieve that through the practice of yoga, especially as a kid? Right. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, what we, we, you know, to go back to like the, you know, you can read some of the, the historical literature about when the term mind body connection actually evolved. And it does come out of a time period where there was a, um, a growth in reductionistic thinking, which is reductionism is being able to distill and isolate in order to then describe. As someone now who's um, become like a, a student in the scientific method and looks at, you know, tools of measurement and evaluation, um, as well as then application and reproducibility, uh, the reductionistic mindset is super helpful, but we also have to then balloon out and understand that that's a philosophical point of view. It's a positionality and to think about the holistic nature of um, the body. So, 
in thinking of systems biology, which is, you know, mind and body, right? You know, nervous system or, you know, central nervous system to, you know, to systems. Um, then we also can take a step back and say, well, what if we don't use those definitions to be able to describe what we're observing? There's an interesting um, field of interoceptive awareness and um, or interoceptive research. And, you know, the terms are coined like interoceptive awareness um, and ability. And it's looking at like the coherent relationship between the self to the self and specifically about the regulations of the bodily systems and, you know, that include like cognition, emotional states and how they then influence um the physiological system. So it's sometimes like not just like one and then the other. It's like this, these, this like multiple um, moving machine where, you know, I studied, I, I went to school to study physiology because I wanted to understand the complexity of our body's response to the stress and stimulus of, um, of movement and specifically like, you know, what we would kind of coin as exercise. But then also wanting to know that, you know, I think that yoga is unique in that there's both the stimulus of activity, but then there's also the regulating effect of like the, of the upper and lower, you know, regions of the brain beginning to then respond to this stimulus, like interpret the stimulus. And so when you do look at some of the research literature of advanced yogis versus like, you know, um, novice yogis, that it's very confusing because you've got someone who's able to regulate their their response to the the stress of the physical stimulus, and so there the way that you can collect some of the data it shows very differently in terms of like heart rate. You know, a, a beginner is going to have, of course, like a higher exertion um, versus someone who's used to that stimulus. I mean, you see that in elite athletes too. So there's like an adaptative effect. But I think there's something a little bit more complex going on. And maybe athletes also would would attest to having a very similar, almost like religious experience in high um, levels of training that, you know, I think that we can't count out. Um, so anyway, I, you know, when, when you're talking about like the, the ecosystems of the, uh, of the body-mind connection, I, I like to also unpack it a little bit more and looking at the complexity um, of these self-writing complex systems, like, you know, that there's, there's both the positive and negative feedback loops that begin to occur to like when you're, you know, when, when your body does heat up from activity, from exercise, that then there is these regulating that they almost like over counter act the, you know, the re response so that, you know, your body's always keeping this very stable state um, in order to, you know, maintain life. And so then we have those kinds of like the, the origins of when those were described in the 1800s and then, you know, in the early 1900s. But then we also have like Herbert Benson, um, who's still alive, you know, of the relaxation response and Steve Porges of like the polyvagal theory, which is super popular right now in yoga to talk about like the parasympathetic um, response um, and, you know, the, the vagal, the, the, the vagus nerve. Um, but I'm also thinking about it in terms of like tissue adaptations, blood flow regulations. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm thinking about of like, how could we maximize the benefits of yoga and to understand them and to continue to 
apply them and to design programs where they could be incredibly helpful to, you know, like in my area of research of looking at like oncology patients and cancer patients or sedentary patients. Then, you know, with some of my friends who are more focused on like neurological conditions of like Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease, where there's some really exciting research that's even going into like this virtual reality um, stimulus with like patients in the ICU unit. You know, there's some like, how can we use all of these different tools that um, then could have an impact? You know, where where we could say like virtual reality is very mind body, like it's it's you know visual to you know visual that overrides the kinesthetic, it overrides the body we experience, yeah. and it's I think it's an exciting time for us to begin to think about this and that, um, you know, and and to source some of the ancient information when people had more time to practice, um, do longer practices of yoga, you know, yeah. that we can, we can, you know, hopefully still capture from some of those libraries and get them translated um, and disseminated so that they could be useful to the next generation. Yeah. And, and when I think about like in my practice, oftentimes the instructor will, right before we begin, maybe we'll be lying down or we'll be sitting in a cross-legged position and we'll be asked to just notice our breath going through our body or areas of tension that exist in your body. And oftentimes, like just moving through day to day, we're not thinking about how our body feels. You Mm -hmm. only realize your back is hurting when you stand up and you've been sitting hunched over your desk all day. And so Mm -hmm. I, I really love that moment at the beginning of class to just bring the focus inward and think about where in your body is there pain or discomfort or where does it feel really relaxed? And then as you go through the movements, you're constantly thinking about that as well, trying to be mindful about how the energy is flowing or where there's space opening up. So I think that in my experience, like the mind body connection is actively paying attention and being aware to the changes that are occurring throughout the flow from the beginning to during and then to right at the very end when you're in the final resting pose, Savasana, and you're, it's just the most relaxing experience. Um, And I think that that has been one instance for me, at least, where I've been able to kind of feel that mind-body connection. And and to put it in, because you're a student of, of the neurosciences, you know, of how so much of our um, our sensory experience is self-protective in order to survive as a you know as an independent entity in the world, and so that outward focus serves a good purpose. But then, when we do shift that attention into like more of this introspective um, experience of like what are we feeling internally? Like are you know are we thirsty? Are we in pain? Are we holding tension? then to use our our attention, our awareness, the fact that we can even be aware of these things is pretty remarkable because um, you think about how many um, species on the planet exist without this real sense of internal awareness and understanding. And it, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me also of that, you know, that Shakespeare quote, know thyself, you know, of, and, and to know ourselves at each stage of our life and how it, our needs are different. You know, yeah, especially like how you had mentioned earlier, just the way that children perceive the world. And at the beginning, or for maybe let's say the first half of childhood, the the parents largely influence the children's perception of them in the world. And then as they grow yeah. up, it's 
mentor figures in their life, teachers, uh, coaches, other types of mentors that exist to kind of shape the child's perspective. And I am so fascinated by how you've taken the practice of yoga and really tried to understand it and apply it in a very psychological lens and also from a neuroscientific perspective to childhood development. Because often when we think about yoga, we think about another exercise or an activity or an adult activity because most yoga classes are for adults. And a lot of people I feel like don't even get interested in yoga until maybe college or after they graduate. And I just, I think it, the practice has so much to offer, especially for those who are younger individuals. Well, I'm excited of what you'll do with it because, you know, now that you've had that first person experience of knowing what worked for you and, and, you know, I, I only had so much to go on, um, you know, in terms of my background experience in education that now, you know, it's up to the, you know, the next generation to really also maybe formatted in a way that works for the next generation. You know, science, one of the things I love about being in the scientific community is it's about adding to the conversation um, that of what's previously existed, but what's new on the frontier. And in my own personal practice, I do a, a, like a little prayer, if you will, of like, of, of honoring the teachers and the information and the knowledge that it existed before me you know, honoring myself for my courage and strength to be a caretaker of this information. But then also I, I make a prayer for the future um, and for the future generation that they may have um, and be gifted with this and use it to their the best um, outcomes for the world and for their population, for the generation that they will influence. Yeah. And I think um, it just yoga is such a community oriented activity as well. When you're practicing with Mm -hmm. others, there's this really special feeling of being in a room full of people who are practicing together. Um, Oftentimes at the end of a class, when you do like namaste and the prayer, you're, you're thanking yourself for coming up and showing up for yourself, but you're also thanking the others around you for practicing with you that, that time. So it's, there's something really powerful about being with other people doing yoga and building a larger community around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we're wrapping up, uh, it's been so wonderful to have you and I could talk about yoga for hours and you continuously blow my, blow my mind and blow me away with all the amazing research that you've done in the field. And uh, I'm confident that you will finish your, uh, your, your doctorate at Columbia I know you're on maternity leave, but um, you will you will soon be on the way to getting your doctorate, which is really exciting. And it's just it's kind of crazy for me to think that here we are today talking about this when I met you like 11 years ago, which is crazy, isn't it? I know I'm looking at you, and I'm just remembering um, remembering our time together, and it's just certainly it has a lot of meaning to me. And um, yeah, I really cherish this, Bella. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And one last um, question that I have before um, we we end the episode today is, and it's something I ask every single guest, is um, what is something that brings you endorphins every day? So just general happiness. I, I kind of list so many things like, you know, being able to hold my daughter and, you know, talk on the phone with someone and eat good food and drink water and go to bed at a good time. Um, you know, all those basic things that I think we all know what to do that we should be doing. 
But I'm going to add in one more thing that really is, I think, pertinent to this time in history, and that is because we are lacking stimulus to make sure you're increasing positive stimulus, um, that you're getting, um, you know, whether it's reading a, a really good book or article, getting outside and feeling yourself a part of the world and of society, even if it's just, you know, you're safely um physically distancing from others, but just that you're a part of the world and to feel that tethering. So, um, or to feel the air on your skin. I think we need that more than ever is that, that feeling of not being isolated, but of being in, included um, in, and I think to increase stimulus is what is what I'm craving um, more and more. And so having this conversation, you know, gave me some endorphins. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 